0: You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Well, amen. It's good to see you. I ask you to please take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4 is where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can go online to esvbible.org. You can just Google. ESV, it's the translation I'm preaching out of this morning, or you can have a Bible there on the ground next to you, and we'll dive right into Hebrews chapter 4, continuing in our series in the book of Hebrews. And if you're new, what we do every week is we stand together for the reading of God's Word, so I ask you now if you're able to, let's stand together for the reading of the Word of Christ, and we'll begin in Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll read through to verse 13. And the Holy Spirit says, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, as they were not united by faith with those who listened. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us now. Help us by your great power and by your great mercy. Would you help us to hear your voice from your word? And we would learn what it means to rest in you. Help us now, King Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now that my son Oliver is three years old, he thinks he can do everything on his own, that he doesn't need me anymore. He, whether it's climbing into the car and he starts saying, I got it, I can do it. Turning on the light in the bathroom and say, I got it, I got it. When it's time to eat and he's got to go climb into his high chair because he tried the big boy chair but fell right out. So now he's like, yeah, I want to go in the high chair. He <laughs> is going to the high chair and I go to help him and he'll point at me not you. And he'll climb up into it. And I I love it. I love that he's growing in his confidence to do some of these things on his own, but there are still some things that he needs my help with, whether he realizes it or not. He can climb into the car, but he can even climb into his seat, but he still needs my help to do all the buckles and all the apparatuses that are on that thing. And he tries and tries and tries, and I try to help him. And he says, no, I can do it. I can do it. And I said, buddy, I I love that you want to try to do it. I think that's good. But you need me. It'll be a lot easier if you sit back, take your hands off, and let me do this. Just trust me, okay? And he'll look at me, okay, and then he'll let me do it. I was reading the passage this week, and I I couldn't help but think about my interactions with my son. Because we are often like a toddler in the car seat. We think we can do it all, but, but we cannot. We fall into the trap of telling God, I can do this. I can fix my marriage. I, I can kill this sin. I can kick this addiction. I, I can do this, God. Just watch me. We think we can do enough good works to get to heaven. And we tell God, I got this, God. I mean, just watch how good I am. I can prove it to you. But in reality, God isn't looking for us to prove anything to him. The gospel is a promise and an invitation to rest in God's grace. And the trouble is that American Christianity often has a flavor of whistle while you work yourself into God's grace. But that is not real Christianity. Real Christianity is to abandon self-glory. Real Christianity is to unplug the efforts of self-achievement. And to realize the grace and peace that God offers us in the crucified body and the resurrected body of Jesus of Nazareth. What we're learning from this passage is that we need God's rest. We need God's rest. Look at verse one. Look look at how he begins. In chapter three, you can see the very first word of chapter four, verse one is therefore, and there's an old phrase, when you see a therefore, ask what's it there for? So what's it there for? He's tying us back into chapter three reminding us of the people in the Exodus who they did not listen to God's word. They, they hardened their hearts towards God and they did not enter into the promised land. A lot of them died in the wilderness and Joshua brought in another group of people. So he's reminding us of that. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, I love how this begins. While the promise of entering his rest still stands right now, this moment, God's offering you rest. Are you spiritually exhausted? Emotionally burdened and spent? I mean, some of us are here today and we are burdened because you have been carrying guilt and shame and sins for decades now, always hiding, always covering. Or you've been suffering and you haven't been dealing with your suffering. we have been trying to make up for our sins. Maybe you've been working so hard to be a good person and you still don't understand why you aren't happy. Maybe you're still filled with doubt and unsure of what's going to happen to you after you die. Verse 1, listen, is an invitation to enter into God's rest. Wow, the promise, it's a promise of entering his rest, his rest still stands. Will you receive that promise? I mean, it is available to everyone in this room today. And I can confidently say that the reason you are alive and the reason you are here today in this moment is that so you could hear the invitation into God's rest. Because the gospel of the kingdom of Christ is an invitation to be checked out of the world's morality labor camp and to be ushered into the righteous kingdom of grace. Because the world, the world constantly says, prove yourself, show that you're the best, earn your spot at the table. But the gospel says, Christ has proved himself for you. You can't be the best. And Jesus invites you to the table. Have you really believed the promise to enter into God's rest? Have you entered God's rest, not through your achievements, but through Christ's, through his death on the cross, believing that on the cross he did actually pay for my sins and that it's proven my sins were paid for because he rose again from the dead. And that now, by Jesus, what is given to you is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And you are barreling towards new life on the new earth to come because of Christ alone. If you haven't believed that yet, the promise stands. Believe it today. It still stands. So look to God in faith and believe and you will have rest. And for Christians and, and for those of us in the room who profess to know Christ, listen. Beloved, the writer of Hebrews is concerned that some of the members of this church are not going to enter that rest. Look at what he says, the second half of verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. This word fear means let us be aware, Let, let us be cautious. Let's be honest. Let's be real. Let's be sincere. And in a way, let's be severe with ourselves. Let's not be glib. A kind of Christianity that's always glib, that's always fake smiling is not a real Christianity. There are moments where we must fear, we must assess, we must be severe with ourselves. Do I really know God? This is forcing us to ask ourselves, am I going to reach God's rest at the end of my life? Is that where I'm headed? He's worried that some of them are not going to reach it. And as a pastor, I must be fearing, worried in a God-honoring sense that some of us are going to fail to reach it. That's why this passage exists. Because look at verse 2. For good news came to us, the gospel, just as to them. Now, who is the them? It's the people who were brought out in the Exodus, those Israelites who were ushered out of Egypt by Moses. He's saying, they too heard the good news of redemption from slavery in Egypt, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The people in Exodus, they heard, but it didn't benefit them. They saw it, but it didn't benefit them. They saw Mount Sinai and the clouds and the thunder and the lightning and they heard God's name and they got the Ten Commandments. They got all of these things. But Moses looks back, the book of Hebrews looks back and you see it didn't benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They didn't believe. The gospel doesn't benefit you if you only hear it. The gospel doesn't benefit you if you only are are part of a church that preaches the gospel. The gospel only benefits us if we believe it and if we receive it and if it is lived out through us. Because look at verse three. For we who have believed, so we who did believe the good news that came to us, what? Have entered that rest. If you've believed in Christ, you have entered that rest. Faith in the gospel of Jesus dying for my sins and rising again from the dead, paying for them, freeing them, breaking the chains, making you new, means you've entered that rest. And God's rest, guys, God's rest is kind of a two-stage thing. It's a already and, and not yet. So God's grace and his rest right now, verse three says, we have entered. It is a real-time rest. You are weary, you are frazzled, you are burdened, you are weighed down with sins with guilt and with shame. God's rest is real-time help to us. We're at peace with God. We have peace from God. We don't have to scratch and claw our way into the kingdom. We're at rest with him. And also, God's rest is a coming attraction. Well, there will be a place where there is no more cancer. There will be a place where there are no longer any sins, any sicknesses, any diseases, any pain. When we die, we will enter into a glorious eternity, a non-exhausting, undepletable, energizing existence with God. And you know, I was thinking this week, beloved, all the physical tiredness we feel, these are all metaphors for our spiritual exhaustion. I think when Jesus says, if you're tired and burdened, heavy laden, usually we probably think of, oh, yeah, my plantar fasciitis is acting up. <laughs> but Jesus is going at a deeper level. Young parents, you know this, that you finally get the kids to bed and they've stopped coming out of bed asking for water. They're all in bed. You're, you're, and what do you do? You go down. Oh, you plop down on the couch. ah, oh, you're tired. It's exhausting. And the older you get, the more pronounced all this tiredness and effects become on our bodies where your, eyes, your eyesight's going away, your back is hurting for no reason, you sneeze and hurt your shoulder, it's just, all these things start happening to you. <laughs> Long days at work, your body's achy. Th- these are all neon signs and reminders that we cannot go without rest. God has given us the blessing of exhaustion to remind us that we are not God. That even the youths grow tired and weary. That we need God. Not just physically, but spiritually. And our souls. We need Jesus. Because you can look throughout our world, everyone is trying to make rest. Everyone is after rest. Rest. Whether that's having the perfect pillow, having the right blanket, having apps that track our sleep. We are obsessed with making sure we're resting. And there's other ways, whether that's we chase it through Netflix, chase it through meditation, chasing it through chakra beads, our alcohol, our other people's bodies. Everyone is chasing rest even trying to soothe themselves by being a good person and doing a lot of good work so their, so their souls will be at rest. But you see, the Bible's telling us we can't create our own rest because it is a promise to enter his rest. We need to enter into God's. And how do we enter? What does verse three say? For we who have believed enter that rest. It's only by faith. It's not through works. And here's what we need to understand about faith. We usually think of faith as something as, I, uh, yeah, I know it's true. I believe that's true. This is really important. This is a really important message for the Bible Belt. Faith is more than some cranial recognition of the truthfulness of Christianity. You know, demons know that Jesus died and rose from the dead. So just the fact that you know that, it doesn't mean that you're a Christian. Faith is believed and faith is lived. This is a big point in Christianity, that being a Christian is more than affirming the truths of Christianity. And you can prove it real fast. It's so easy. I can affirm that George Washington was the first president of the United States. That doesn't change my life. It doesn't change. It doesn't make me go, oh, George Washington, first president. I really want to forgive people now. It doesn't matter. Pass a test, great. It doesn't change your life. You can affirm the truth that the Texans lost to the Patriots. That might change your life a little bit, but it doesn't have any long-term effects for you to be kind to one another, for you to serve others. So Christianity isn't just something we affirm. It is something we believe, and it's something we live. This is an inseparable reality of authentic Christianity. And if there is any kind of Christianity that's, okay, yeah, I, I, I totally, I ascribe to all these things, but the life is not changed. That person is not made new sins are not repented of. There is no growth. There is no fruit. There is no desire to follow Christ. The Bible says that's not Christianity. Because look at verse 6, and he proves it to us. As he he talks about in verses 3 through 4 and 5, about the seventh day and the rest and how God rested on the seventh day. and We'll get to that in a second. But verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, that rest those who formally received the good news, and he's talking about those in the Exodus, they failed to enter. Why? Because of disobedience. So this proves that it's not just something you go, yeah, I think it's true. Because what did he say in verse 2? Why did they not enter into that rest in verse 2? Because they were not united by faith. Well, now he says in verse 6, it's because of their disobedience. So which is it? It's both. Because they are an inseparable unit. You cannot separate faith and then the obedience that follows. Because faith without works, as James says, is dead. This is why Jesus tells people, "Sell all that you have, then come follow me. And then people don't do it. Why? Well, I just want you to tell me I'm going to go to eternal life. I I don't want to follow you. This is real Christianity. They did not enter because of their disobedience. That's why that nation, that's why that generation of Israel didn't enter. They heard, but they didn't follow. They heard, but they didn't obey God's voice and obey God's commands, which shows they didn't have a real relationship with God. They just wanted God to take them out of Egypt. They didn't want to follow God. And if all we want is God not to send us to hell and not follow God, then we don't really know God. We don't really follow God. Listen, we think about the people in the Exodus. They could affirm, oh yeah, God brought us out of Egypt. He did plagues, he did the frogs, he did the blood, he did the nighttime thing, he split the sea. I mean, they could go on and on and on and saying all the things that they know happened. But they didn't honor him. They didn't follow him. They didn't obey him. They didn't want to. At one point, they got so bad, they were like, you know what, why don't we just go back to Egypt? That'd be equivalent to us just saying, you know what, this Christianity thing, this just thinks, Why don't we just go back to Satan. Walking with Jesus, following God's ways, shows we are resting with God. And one thing we realize from this passage is that the rest he keeps talking about, this rest isn't about the promised land, though it seems like it. Maybe that's what we thought of originally. Oh, it's, he's talking about the promised land. No, he's talking about something greater than that. This is rest from a works religion. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, the Bible says, For if Joshua had given them rest, remember, it wasn't Moses who brought them into the promised land, but Joshua. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. You could paraphrase it this way If Joshua would really have given them rest, why is God bringing it up again in Psalm 95? If Joshua really had given them rest, why am I, the writer of Hebrews, why am I telling you about it? That the promise still stands. It's because Joshua didn't really give them rest. Rest wasn't in the promised land. Because in Psalm 95, which he keeps quoting over and over and over again, in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, he keeps talking about the rest that he's going to give them this this other day. God keeps telling them about the rest he offers. And he keeps telling us that God's rest is available to us. So what does this mean for us? That if Joshua didn't really give it, it still stands. What is it? Verse 9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Not just the nation of Israel, but the people of God. People from every tribe, people from every language, people from every nation, people from every race. There is rest offered, available, and open. And now we're going to think about this Sabbath rest. What does Sabbath mean? It was the Jewish rest on on the seventh day of the week where you would cease from work. Resting from your labors and trusting God will provide. And we really struggle with the concept of why the Sabbath was such a big deal. Because we have weekends. Most of us, we work five days, and then we got Saturday, Sunday off. So we would think, Sabbath day, easy. I got two of them, it's great. But listen, what if you were a seven day a week person? And if you missed one day, you got way behind real fast. This is the agricultural society they were in. They were constantly having to be in the fields, constantly having to work, constantly plowing, sowing, harvesting, reaping, separating the threshing floor and all that stuff all the time. You get one day behind, you're in trouble. And so now the God's telling them, you work seven days, but on one day, I want you to stop working and I want you to trust me completely. Everyone else is grinding it out. But you, my people, you trust me that I will provide everything you need. Do you you hear the analogy already to the gospel into the seventh day, into the Sabbath rest? Stop from your works on this day and trust me. The gospel is embedded right into the creation week and right into the Sabbath day. Because look at verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest. So what does it look like when you enter into God's rest? He has also rested from his works as God did from his. So God gave the people the Sabbath day. He did the creation week, you know, worked for six days. And he says, and I rested on the seventh. Why? Why? Because if we want to be with God, we must rest from our works too. If we want to be with God, if you want to be forgiven by God, if you want to be accepted by God, it cannot be on our terms, must be his. If you want to be forgiven, if you want to be with God in eternity, you must rest from your works, from you trying to earn your salvation for you trying to impress God with how good you are, from you trying to be the best Christian on the planet that God must love the most. Brothers and sisters, Christianity isn't a religion of works. It's a religion of rest. God rested on that seventh day because the work is done. And we rest because the work is done. When Jesus is dying on the cross and he yells, it is finished. He is preaching the gospel in his death and he's preaching the gospel at his death. That I finished what I came to do. I came to die, to ransom people for God, to die in their place, to die for their sins. And it's done. And there is not a single work, a single drop, a single thing that we can add to the work of God. He completed the task of saving sinners from their sins. And now this is why we find rest in Jesus and not ourselves. As Jesus says in Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Christians, we go to Christ. And he gives us rest. And we're yoked with him, tethered with him, that piece of wood that would take two animals and kind of hitch them together so they could do the work together. Jesus says, you can be yoked to me. You don't have to do this on your own. You can be tethered to me and I'll do the pulling because my burden is light. You come with me, it will be light. You come with me, your life will be so much easier. Christians rest because Christ completed the work. We rest in the righteousness of Christ. Christian rest is remembering that God accepts me not on my best efforts, but on Jesus's work. Christian rest means that we don't panic over the state of our eternity. That we can rest knowing Jesus has handled us, handled all of this for us. So listen, do you struggle to rest in God's grace? Are you constantly worrying? Do I measure up? Does God really love me? Do you still struggle with trying to achieve your salvation, trying to earn God's favor, trying to earn God's love? Learn what it means to rest with Christ. That I'm saved. Nothing that I have done, nothing that I can do, nothing that I won't do, but all Christ has done for me. And we receive it by faith. Have you entered that rest? To be a Christian, as you see Jesus saying, is to be tethered to Christ. Sometimes we think we like just the first part where Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, And I'll give you rest. We think, oh, yes, so good. But remember, keep reading. What does it really mean to take up my yoke and learn from me? It means to be tethered to Christ and to walk with Christ. So see, Christianity isn't just coming to Jesus for relief. It is coming to Jesus and then walking with Jesus, learning from him how we live. So we run toward rest with Christ. Look at verse 11. Since verse 10 is true, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. It is amazing that he says the word strive here. Because you would think, after all of this, he would say, let us rest. Let us rest to enter that rest. But he says, no, let us strive. I love the irony here because it's jarring for a second. He's been so much about rest, 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 rest. Now strive to enter that rest. Why? Why do we have to work hard into that rest? Why we have to press on into that rest? How do we enter that rest to come? Because to rest in Christ doesn't mean we're checked out in Christ. That, oh, I can just kind of let go and let God. I like that phrase and I hate that phrase. I like it for salvation. Let go, God saves me. I despise that phrase for sanctification. Let go, like God. The Bible doesn't talk that way. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work in you. So we don't let go and let God. We, we put effort. The gospel is opposed to us earning anything from God. You must hear that. The gospel is opposed to us earning anything from God, but the gospel is not opposed to us putting in effort to grow with God. That's what he means by strive. It's disobedient to not listen to Jesus. We are denying the rest offered to us when we disobey Jesus. We don't walk with Jesus in all life. He is saying here, work hard at resting with Christ. Work hard at resting in his grace. You know why? Because the cosmic forces and the satanic powers are at war against us that we would not rest in his grace. So we must strive towards that grace, towards that rest. We must strive, work hard at resting in his grace because we have indwelling sin. We have the old nature. We have our temptations. We have all of these thoughts and feelings and emotions inside of us that are tempting us and we got to fight hard against them. Listen, I'm so serious. If you think it is easy to deal with temptation, you absolutely sin more than you realize. Jesus withstood temptation for 40 days in the wilderness, which is symbolic of the 40 years that Israel failed in temptation. Jesus won. And after this session that Jesus has with Satan for 40 days, after it's done, Jesus doesn't say, whew, man, y'all want to get something to eat? The Bible says, after Satan departed, angels came and ministered to him, strengthening him. He was exhausted. And he strived and he endured and he fought for you and for me. So that we could strive and that we too could fight by his power and by his grace to rest in the promises of God. Because that's what Jesus did in every temptation. He rested in the promises of God. Satan tempted him, Jesus countered with rest in the promise of God. Jesus, Satan tempted Jesus again, he countered with a rest in the promise of God. We got to see that the Christian life is not a parade. On this earth, it's not a parade. It is a slugfest. It is a war. It is a grueling marathon against the satanic powers and our flesh. That's why the Bible often says fight the good fight of faith, strive to enter that rest, or run the race with endurance, strive to enter that rest. We are resting in Christ. That doesn't mean we've got our feet up, it means we're carrying a cross too. Daily, dying to self. So how do we strive? How do we strive to enter that rest? So let us strive. Okay, I got to keep going. I don't check out. Christianity is not with your feet up. It's, it's walking with Christ, walking with him. How do I do that? Now, these closing verses, verses 12 through 13, these are all about the role of God's word in our lives. Last week, we saw how today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And we talked about reading the Bible, getting in the book and and enjoying God's word. And that's true. And these verses now, I mean, we could say the same thing. Hey, you know, start a reading plan, start reading, get going. And that would be fine. But the intent of these verses is a lot more than that. These verses now are reminding us that, that to be people of the Bible means we live what the Bible says. God doesn't care if you know all of the verses and you don't live them. God's more concerned about that. And Christianity that knows the Bible but then doesn't live the Bible is dangerous. To strive is to obey God's word. Because see, what's the contrast in verse 11? Let us strive. Well, what happens if we don't strive? What's the last word in verse 11? Disobedience. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So striving is in that lane of obedience. To not strive with God's word is to disobey God. So this means that when we are reading the Bible, we're not just checking boxes. We are being confronted with things we shouldn't be doing. Shouldn't be thinking, shouldn't be feeling, shouldn't be wishing for and we're confronted by things we should be doing, <laughs> things we should be thinking, sh- things we should be feeling, things we should be praying for. And if we hear those and go, oh, cool, and do nothing about it, we are not striving to enter that rest. Because look at verse 12. For the word of God. So he, all this talk about striving and obedience, and here's why. Here's how we do it. Verse 12. For the word of God is living and active Sharper than any two-edged sword. For the Bible to be living reminds us this is not a stale book. This is unlike any other book in the universe. It's living and it's, it's powerful. It's got a pulse and it's, it's always relevant. Sure, the Bible was completed years and years and years ago, but this book isn't dated. It's living and active. And this word active, I, I don't like the ESV translation of this. I don't think it's the best. It almost sounds redundant. Living and active. It really means efficient and effective. The Bible accomplishes what it sets out to do. It's effective. It's not a snoozer. It's not a bust. Sometimes, you know, you'll hear of college players who were drafted, either NFL or NBA, and they were a bust. They didn't work out. They didn't meet up to expectations. Sometimes we think that way about the Bible. We sit down to read and we expect these warm, fuzzy feelings and fireworks and angelic harp music in the background. And we read and we sit back and go, what was, what did I read? What was that? Nothing happened. I didn't feel good. I actually felt worse. That was a bust. And then we get discouraged and we don't read anymore. That's not true of God's word. God's word always accomplishes its purpose. We just may not see it right away. Just like you plant a seed, and you don't go out there the next day and go, well, that was a bust. (laughs) There's time, patience. And listen, beloved, when you read this week, God's purpose may not be for you to have warm fuzzies, but maybe a taste of cold steel, of that sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. This is sharper than any two-edged sword because a two-edged sword is better than a one-edged sword. One-edged sword can only strike in one way. It's predictable. A two-edged sword is unpredictable. It can strike from any, any angle. And the Bible is this way. It can get you from any angle. It can serve you from any angle. It can strike you from any angle. It can hit you from the Psalms. It can hit you from Proverbs. It can hit you from Hebrews. It can serve you from Leviticus. It can serve you from Romans 8. There's no better resource than God's word. Sharper than anything else on the planet. Nothing better for your spiritual warfare. Nothing more effective for your small group. Nothing more powerful for preaching or for counseling, for prayer, for mission, for evangelism. There's nothing that compares to the Bible. Because look at what the Bible says the Bible does. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. What does that mean? It means it gets to the smallest indivisible thing about us and reads it. You could almost update this to say something like, it splits atoms. It's the most powerful nuclear microscope on the planet and divides atoms in half and then divides them again. It's just communicating. It gets to the smallest thing, the most real thing about us. Even our joints and our marrow, our blood vessels, can get right into the real us and cut through it all. The Bible calls our bluff. God's word cuts right through our fakeness. We can fake out people in our groups, but we can't fake out God and his word. We can pretend our marriages are great, but we can't fake out God and his word. It shows us reality, shows us how we need Jesus, shows us how we're sinning, and shows us how we need rest. Rest with God. So hear it. Do not harden your hearts, but obey it. Because it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And remembering, because of verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. Just like Adam and Eve after they sinned. Naked and exposed to the eyes of him, to whom we must give account You must give an account to God for your life. He sees everything. So even right now, what do you think you are hiding from God? And I say, what do you think you're hiding? Because you're failing. Even though this is what's so tricky about sin and our flesh and Satan is that we think we're doing a good job at hiding. We're failing. Because we can't hide it from God. You can erase internet history, but he sees We can delete texts and emails, but he sees. We can lie and cover, but he knows. And since you will be held accountable to God for your life, what will you say to him? What will happen on that day in verse 13 to whom we must give account? When that happens, what will you say to him? What will your defense be? I just want to prepare you for your eternity. What will you say Will you say something like, hey, I, I tried to be a good person. I mean, I did this. I did these things. So obviously we're good, right? No. Will you say, I, I trusted in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus for my sins. That is the only way you will find true rest for your soul. The only way you'll have real rest for your life. If you deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow Christ. I'm resting in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus for my sins. Rest in the saving help he offers. And let's stop being like a toddler in the car seat. I got it, God, I got it. But by faith, let's rest in God's grace. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, Visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.